Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Oxford University offers a very unique learning experience that combines the tutorial system, ancient traditions, cutting-edge research and facilities, as well as diverse individuals from all corners of the world. The university is comprised of 39 colleges, with all students and faculty belonging to a college, as well as to their course department. One of the largest Oxford colleges is St. Catherine's College, fondly referred to as St. Cat's. I'm delighted to be joined by the person leading St. Cat's to discuss the Oxford learning experience, as well as her experience leading the college. Professor Sheshti Boryaj is the Master of St. Catherine's College and Professor of Linguistics. Her academic focus is on how languages change and why it happens. In January of 2020, Professor Boryaj became the Master of St. Catherine's College, coming from the University of Manchester, where she was a linguistics professor and associate vice president. Thank you very much, Shashti, for joining me on the podcast. Uh, It's a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to have you, first of all, because you are the head of the Oxford College that I was at while I was doing my PhD, but also you came just after I left, so we haven't had a chance to meet in person. So I'm really pleased that we can do that now. Yeah. You're originally from Sweden, and now you are at St. Katz, which is designed by a fellow Scandinavian, a very famous Danish architect, Arne Jakobsen. So how does it feel to live and work in a Scandinavian design at the center of Oxford? Well, I do think there are aspects to it that feel very Scandinavian. For instance, the, the openness of it. We're unusual for an Oxford college in not having any walls around us. Yes. And I think that does make a difference. There's also simplicity to the design of the college that I think feels Scandinavian. The situation of the college, obviously, Arne Jakobsen didn't have a chance to, to choose that one. But even though it's only 10 minutes from Broad Street, which is one of the central streets in Oxford, it is you just have to cross a bicycle path and you can walk for miles along the river in yes. green areas. And that's, of course, also the, the closeness to nature is quite a Scandinavian thing. Absolutely. I had so many wonderful walks and just watching the ducks and, and the wildlife. It's, it's incredibly relaxing after a day of busy work. It's really, really pleasant. Particularly this time of year where the birds have the plenty of ducklings and signets around. Coming back to the Scandinavian thing, my lodgings, which is the house in college where I live, it's a big family house. And downstairs, it's got representational rooms that are all furnished by Arne Jakobsen. And in some respects, it reminds me of pictures of my parents' first flat in Stockholm. Oh, how nice. Because it was early 1960s. I'm absolutely sure they did not have Arne Jakobsen furniture, but the style of it is quite similar. So it's a little bit like walking into a 1960s time walk. <laughs> Very special. That is a very special memory to have. So you arrived to Oxford in January of 2020 to take up the role of Master of St. Catherine's College, which is one of the largest colleges in Oxford. What struck you in the early days of being at Oxford? Yeah, 
to be honest, I was probably quite badly prepared for it, actually, because it's okay. very, very hard to understand what a, how a college works, mm. what a master does until you're actually here. I think that's so true for so many students, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. That no matter how well you prepare, you actually don't quite understand Oxford. No. Uh, but I'm curious to hear your experience. So, so one thing is, is visually the how very clearly it is a community so as I said before my lodgings are in college mm -hmm. about 600 students live here they have their gym here they have their music room here they have their hall where they eat here they have their bar here so uh, I'm very very close to the students and because I have a dog, I go out a lot. And even if they don't recognize me, they recognize the dog. <laughs> and that interaction with the students, I think, is lovely. But, but I wasn't aware. Well, I guess I hadn't thought about it enough. The other thing that is very, very striking for a college that I wasn't prepared for is how it's managed. So a college is a charity. And the trustees of that charity are all the fellows. The fellows are the academics in the college. So we have, in a sense, equal responsibility for the college being run in the interest of all its members. So if I'd been a dean of a faculty somewhere at another university, I would have made decisions and told people to implement them. Whereas here, um, the decisions are taken by the governing body with all the fellows there. And when there's a big issue, we discuss it in the governing body and we come to a decision. So it's, it's really quite, in spite of its sort of old fashionedness and stuffiness, it is a very democratic environment. And, and that, that was one of the striking aspects also for me. Absolutely. And these fellows are the professors who are also teaching at their own departments, but they're also teaching the students at the college. Yeah. So it's a very involved. And as you yeah. said, it really does feel and it is a home in many respects especially for the undergraduates who study in college eat in college and and live yeah. in college it's it's very very special as we mentioned before st catherine's is a modern college very unique scandinavian architecture and each college at oxford has its own traditions and atmosphere so what stands out to you as being unique to st cats well uh, our motto is nova et vetra which is Latin for the new and the old. And I guess the fact that it is in Latin, but it refers to, to the new and the old, I think that, that captures things. So it, it's a combination of a very new environment in many ways, but combined with old traditions. Yes. So it's a, it's a modern open college. Physically, as I said, it is open, unlike other colleges. And I think that sort of translates into... A particular student is attracted by our college. So I think it sort of translates into to a modern, open thinking about things. Of course, many colleges would say we're open and new thinking, but colleges with several hundred years of tradition, they will have a, a lovely building and, and tradition and things like that. But I think that kind of history can also weigh quite heavily on your shoulders we were formed as a college in 1962, but before that, it was an association for students who couldn't afford to live in a college because that was at the time a prohibitively expensive thing. So we, we come from, from this open to people who couldn't otherwise be in Oxford. So I think it is a, it does colour who we are and what we do. 
Absolutely. Well, that's wonderful. I know there's quite a lot of outreach being done as well to schools where maybe the students wouldn't have thought about coming to Oxford, which is a wonderful thing. Yeah. And so the role of head of a college and at St. Catherine's, this role is called a master. At each college, it, it might be a different name. It is a very unique role and an important role at Oxford, one that doesn't exist in the same way at other universities to be head of a college. So how do you see your role and what do you enjoy most about it? Yeah, as, as I said, because it's such a unique role, I'm not, I had a sort of romantic idea of it, I think, and I was charmed to be asked to apply for it. But I think it's a combination of two major aspects. And I think in answer to your question, what I enjoy about it is exactly that it's a combination of those two things. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those things is to be an academic manager So in some sense, maybe comparable to a dean of a faculty. But the democratic underpinning of the college makes it fundamentally uh, different. And then, of course, also that I would have lunch with my colleagues most days, whereas a dean would usually be far away in a distant building. So that is an unusual form of, of being an academic manager. And then the other side of the job is the the thing you might refer to as pastoral, to, to work on, on community cohesion of the well-being of all members of the college. One of our sons was in a college in Cambridge, mm-hmm. and he described his master as a benign presence. And I think if I can be a benign presence in college, then that's a good thing. So quite apart from taking an interest in the studies of our students, I also go and watch football games, rowing competitions, music performances, theatre, that kind of thing. I'll pop into the bar from the time to time and and have a drink with the students. So maybe pastoral stroke maternal almost. Mm. Yes, it's an interesting combination, isn't it, of a head of a school. So, for example, a K to 12 school or a high school. It's the head of a school. So you oversee different subjects because your colleagues are from all different academic disciplines, which is very different than at the university level. If you would have been head of your department, your colleagues are all within your field. But here, as you said, when you sit down and have lunch, it's your colleagues from completely different departments who are teaching students studying completely different fields than what you're than your own. And, uh, and that adds a very interesting richness, doesn't it, to look at how our students learning and that pastoral care is very holistic, isn't it, which is unique for a university. Yeah, it's true that if you teach English literature, and you worry about the students struggling a little, you talk to the other tutors of English literature, to get a sense of is this student struggling in your class also or is it the problem with what I'm teaching them or is it some have you spoken to them the students are really very well cared for I they think. are definitely it's very special and as I was junior dean this holistic view of being able to pay attention to the student and care for them from all different directions so that their academic work strives doesn't it I think maybe that would be a good point to stop and explain what the junior dean is Yes, actually, you're right, isn't it? So one of the fellows, one of the professors in in college is a dean. Mm -hmm. So he's responsible for two things, the well-being and the discipline of students. 
and the junior deans work with him. And you're better at saying what a junior dean does than I am. <laughs> yes. Well, it is a very unique position at a university because other than Oxford, I, I don't really believe that those positions exist. So the, the dean and the junior dean really are part of the college. As you said, the dean is a professor at the college. The junior deans are doctoral students at the college. There's about two or four at St. Catharines, there's four. But um, they really have an oversight onto creating a positive, good learning environment. So in the sense that if there's a student that is struggling in their work, then the professor highlights that and we try to find out why are they struggling? Is it because they are maybe not feeling at home? Maybe they are distracted. It could be a whole range of issues that we try to address. And of course, to keep the discipline as well, so that it's a positive atmosphere. So if anyone is has unfriendly and, and problematic behavior, then we pull that into check and also really, again, find out, well, why is that happening? And how can we address it to make sure that we're supported and taken care of so that it's a positive, good learning environment? So from all different aspects, and because the dean and junior deans are so involved in the college for their own work, apart from being junior dean and dean, it's a really, again, a very holistic role, as so many of the roles are, which is wonderful. Actually, coming back to specifically undergraduates at Oxford, it's a tutorial system, which some people uh, might be familiar with, a very unique traditional system where the professors sit in very small groups with students to teach them in their subject matter. So can you give a little bit of an insight of what it looks like to have this tutorial system for undergrads for people who might not know. Yeah, so the students live and belong to a college, but they're registered at the university level and they get an Oxford degree. So they will have lectures in their department, but I think the students will not have such a strong sense of belonging to the department. Their sense of belonging will be in college. And then they have tutorials in college with our fellows who are, you know, at the forefront of their research generally. And those tutorials will be in two, three, four students, something like that. You prepare work for your tutorial. It's, it's hard work being an Oxford student. And then one thing that shapes your educational experience very strongly are the other students. And in Oxford, you do have, I think, uh, very clever unusual students. The discussion you have with your fellow student and your tutor in that small group is really a valuable part of the educational experience. And then you get feedback on whatever you've written or prepared for that tutorial. Yes. So, and because the tutorial builds up towards an exam later, it, it, it's not there to impress your tutor, but if, and, and they do emphasize that very strongly just try an idea if it's not good we'll find out it's not a good idea but try it yes and um, so it's a place you can fail and I think higher education doesn't always offer enough space to try and fail and one of our vice chancellors at Manchester University said there's nothing wrong with failing you just need to learn to do it quickly Absolutely. That's really good. I mean, that is a very unique way of having very individual work and learning from your professors and 
not only understanding the subject, but also getting a sense of how they interact with their subject, because they, they do talk a lot about their own research, and some of them do work in the field, how that looks in practice, which is, I think, absolutely invaluable. But what did you notice? Did, you, did something strike you about this tutorial system, especially compared to a more traditional, as we know today, university system? I think the fact that uh, that you can try out ideas and that you get the individual attention. I think for many other universities, small group teaching means 20 or 25 students, and therefore you get much more of a lecture idea. Yes. I think questions are undervalued in higher education because it's so focused on giving the right answer. Yeah. And I think you have much more time to think about well, is that a good question? You may be able to answer, but is it a good question? There's no point in answering a boring question. So that I think is very good. And I think the feedback also, the fact that you really can get comments on your ideas, you really can develop your ideas. And one thing that a master does is something called master's collection. It means that I see every undergraduate for about five minutes every year with their tutors there. And you may feel, what's the point of seeing them for five minutes? But it is actually lovely. So I have a little bit of time to ask them how they're doing outside their studies. So how's the football coming along? Or uh, is the choir repetitions, you know, a strain on your time? Or, And then I hear them interacting with their tutor about how the work is going. Hmm. And it's just so clear that the tutors really know who this student is, what motivates them, where they're up to, mm -hmm. what they need to do to get further. And I think that personal attention is really a, a key part. It is, absolutely. And you must see some interesting reactions from students in, in terms of maybe a light bulb moment or some kind of realization in those types of conversations, do you? Well, one thing, it, the way my fellows approach that is, is obviously different because the fellows are different. Yes. But some of them engage in a conversation about you need to think about how you approach yourself. Are you just doing a degree or are you really wanting to be a physicist uh, and emphasize you should master your subject unfortunately we're going to have to test you in an exam we want you to do well so we will also talk about how to do an exam but the key part here is to become a physicist and you know I don't think that's a conversation you get a chance to have elsewhere and students react very well to that I think they're quite excited by the thought of not just doing a degree but really becoming a geographer Absolutely, definitely. And I mean, there's nothing more motivating. And it's it's hard to go through university and being lost as a number as it's often referred to in a large university is demotivating because you get isolated and it, it can be very isolating. And this really does bring out that motivation, doesn't it? Where I am seen, I'm not only seen by my professor, but I'm seen from the head of my college and and they want me to succeed and they are trying their best to do that and to connect to my profession, which is really special. And I think also the very small groups allow a tailoring mm -hmm. to who the student is. Yes. Because for some students, getting their degree well is going to be quite a challenge. Yeah. So there you need to support them to do that. And I think so it's not the same goal for everyone. I, I think that British secondary education, that is how they come in 
A-levels, what's it called. I've been very disappointed seeing my children go through that. It's very criteria-based assessment focused. So the poor teachers, there's a, you need to be do well in the league table. So it's important your students do well in the exam. So you end up teaching a little bit towards the marking criteria and the students end up learning to the marking criteria. So I think in a sense, to put it crudely, that needs to be knocked out of them. And I think also the, the personal attention you can get in the way you study in Oxford uh, makes it easier to help the students to switch into a proper learning approach. Absolutely. When a student is thinking about possibly applying Oxford, do you think that there's something that they should really understand about this way of learning before? I mean, you've said so many important insights already, but should they understand something before they decide that they would like to apply? I think that's absolutely true. And I think there's a tendency because a degree from Oxford or Cambridge is seen like a really good thing. So every bright child in a school is told to apply to Oxford or Cambridge. But I think exactly along the lines that you're saying, we need to, to tell the students why it might not be suited to everyone. And I think the charm of belonging to a college, but it also means there's nowhere to hide. The tutors will know who you are. They will know how well you're doing. They will know if you're not submitting work this week. I mean, it holds for the master too. The porters know very well what's coming and going in the lodgings. Um, <laughs> they do. So that if, if you wanted to sort of hide in the back row, then Oxford or Cambridge, some people would find it intrusive, I imagine, this, you leave me alone, I want to, to, to go off and do my own thing. So that's one thing. And I think also in term time, it is very, very hard work. You have to write the essays for the tutorials yes. every single week or, or do the, 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 I don't know, chemistry tasks or whatever it is you have to do. So I think it is is really quite intense. But those would be the two things I think when you think of, of is Oxford right for me? I think you should think of those things too. Yes, definitely. Um, and even as a PhD student, even though you're not tied to terms, but you can still really feel the intensity yeah. of term time yeah. from everybody else. So one of the aspects of the Oxford University experience that I really appreciated greatly and Again, it is this combination of something that is actually very old, but like the tutorial system has a really important role in, in our modern world, is the meaningful conversations with people from very different fields of study and backgrounds. And those conversations happened because of colleges, because colleges are a mix of different disciplines. And there's opportunities such as the college dinners to sit down next to someone at these long tables, next to someone you have probably never met before and talk about what they're working on, what they're doing, who they are. And you're there with that person for the duration of dinner. So it's not fleeting. And so in this fast paced world, this may seem quite outdated, but actually it is such a valuable experience. What do you value in this type of experience? What do you think is important about it? Well, um, one thing actually, lunch may be more than dinner. So uh, uh, the way, first of all, I think the danger of underestimating the value of a casual conversation is great. Casual conversations, they make for social cohesion. And of course, we pass practical information along, but it's also, it develops ideas. It's, 
It makes you see things you hadn't seen before. And I think there's a danger with being very, let's have a conversation about that at 10 o'clock until 10.30, where it's just um, starting. And I think for, for us, uh, with lunch, you come into the room, you get your food, and you sit down at the next free chair, which means that in a week, I probably have lunch with different people every day because it's just when I happen to arrive and when they happen to arrive, that's great. It's a new environment uh, every time. But just the simple fact that it gets us all out of our offices, this modern, you say, the modern hectic world where we all thought we were too busy not to have a sandwich with our computer. And it's just not true because Oxford is a very productive environment. But most of my fellows do come in for lunch. We, we'd be maybe 40 people over time uh, that start at one end of the table and sit down and then start again at one end, the same end. Yes, exactly. And this is what happens with undergrads, with graduate students and with the professors, all of whom do very much the same thing for lunch. And then, as you said, sometimes for dinners as well. I think it's a, such an important because it's seen as a bit of a luxury. And certainly in the working world, it's seen as a luxury to step away from your work and sit down for lunch. But in fact, I think it serves two huge purposes. One you've mentioned, which is creating a cohesive community and a community within the, the space of the school or the work, but also a global community. I mean, so many conversations, finding out about the lives of people who I would have never met and, and, and finding out things about their life because we're sitting there for half an hour, an hour is so new and it creates some understanding of someone else's life experience which I think is very important, but also in terms of work, because so often people say, well, what are you working on? What are you studying? What are you doing? And you get a completely different perspective. I, I mean, I, I know so often that I was working on my doctorate and all day, and then I would go uh, for dinner and be next to someone that I've never met before in a completely different field. And talking about my work actually solidified ideas, but also someone who is in a completely different field, gave me ideas because they questioned something that I actually didn't question. How, how have you seen that becoming a fruitful conversation? Well, it, it, it happens all the time. And you, you, there are actually, you know, scientific collaborations, academic collaborations that have started with yes. conversations like this. So it, it's not always that you talk about your discipline, but you whatever you talk about, you have a particular take on because you come from your discipline. You know, even when people ask a very, very basic question about your research, all right, yes, I should be able to explain that to someone who doesn't know. Why am I doing yes. this? Why am this? My, why is this my question? That's a lovely interaction that, that you miss. And I think in terms of productivity, the fact that you step away from your computer and sit down with others for maybe half an hour that really doesn't, I think you come back fresh and you, you might even do more productive work in the afternoon, quite apart from your well-being. It's, it's, it's a good thing to do. Absolutely. And it fosters that interdisciplinary, which is so important. And Oxford actually just recently created a new center for artificial intelligence and the arts mm. and humanities. So Oxford University was established 900 years ago. It has evolved to meet the needs of the time in which it exists but it also kept many valuable traditions, some of which we've already discussed. But what traditions do you see as serving important roles in our modern world? Well, I think in general, traditions connect us to the past. 
And I think that's that doesn't happen so obviously anymore. My father grew up on a farm that had been in the family since the 16th century, a very small farm. But so connection to the past was not a problem there. It was all around him all the time. But for us, we, we move around much more and, and the connection to the past, we don't see our grandparents in the same way as my father would have done. So I think traditions can connect you to the past in a very positive way. Of course, also in a negative way, it, it cuts both ways. And so in, in, in Oxford, the history, the traditions is, is very, very present through the buildings. The university is 900 years and some of the buildings are pretty close. Uh, but there are also traditions and for an undergraduate, their degree starts with what's called the matriculation process, which is when you formally become a member of the university. And just that, that having a day when you are now a member of the university. And I think for most universities, you, an undergraduate wouldn't have a strong sense of being a member of that community. And their time at Oxford ends with the graduation and that's, both of those ceremonies are held in the Sheldonian Theatre. And for both, they have to wear their gown. So it's a, it's a very, it connects the two, the beginning and the end. And, and the way the graduation is that the college presents the candidate to the university. It's quite charming in that way. And the gown is maybe the most visible of the traditions here. In terms of it's in, it's an academic yeah. gown. Yeah, it's an, an academic, academic gown that shows. Gown. It, it shows your level. There's an undergraduate yes. gown and a scholar's gown and, and, and things. And that may, so, so I would wear my, my academic gown for dinner, for instance. And it may seem divisive. And in the old days, students walked around Oxford with a gown on at all times. And that seems to maybe set yourself apart a little bit too much. When I was at Manchester, my head of school would cite a German-American historian called Ernst Kantorowicz, who wrote about gowns in, in the context of a free speech issue. In, I think it was 1950s or so. And he said that there are three professions that wear gowns, priests, judges and academics. And, and they serve to remind those professions of their duties uh, their duties to, I think the way he put it was not allow themselves to act under duress or yield to pressure. So if you look at it that way, the gun can be an important reminder. So tr traditions more generally can remind us of these things. And I think you're not just here to do a degree, you're actually becoming responsible in some way for, for, for knowledge. I, I guess that the gown is a key thing that runs through Oxford in that sense. That is really a very special and really visually also very unique when you see that. But that reminder of actually you're joining a field of discipline, of study, is a really wonderful thing. And there's just so many traditions that different colleges and the university overall has that is, it's nice to think about the purpose it serves in our modern world. Because there are, isn't it? I mean, we, we keep talking about new ways of learning and new uh, ways of working. But in fact, best is to combine the best of the past and the best of the future yeah. into something that is most productive, which I think is really, really important. What are you most enthusiastic about regarding the future of St. Cats? What do you hope for? 
Well, at the moment, it's getting out of COVID restrictions so that we can lead a normal life again. But uh, exactly, uh, I, I guess after that, m- maintaining our reputation for academic excellence, uh, our students do very well comparatively within Oxford. And apart from producing linguists, geographers, mathematicians who do well in exams, if we do our job well, and if our students use their time here wisely, there should be so much more than that. And I want to make sure that we always focus on that as well as on on the degree results. So when you leave university, I believe there's a there's a discussion in Britain, what do I get for my college fee? And that's the same for any university. Oxford is not more expensive than any other university. Well, I think the answer is you become a completely different person at the end of it. And you, you know more about yourself, you know more about the world around you, you know more about how your role in the world around you can be to the benefit of that world. You should understand diversity and the joys of it. You should have a more mature approach to knowledge, where to find it, how to assess the quality of it. I mean, assessing the quality of information is, it used to be that we had publishers who went through quality assurance. So when it wasn't a book, it should be all right if it was with a good publisher. Now there's uncontrolled information all around. And, and as I said before, I'm, I'm a great fan of questions. So you should have be, be more comfortable with questions and with a period of not knowing. Don't Google it just yet. Think about what sort of answer might you expect? Uh, where would you go for a good answer? That kind of thing. So I think that's what I would want for cats in the future, that our students come out with a good degree according to their their talents and instincts and what have you but with all these other things that's what I want absolutely that's really really important as you said I mean being able to assess the quality of information and to be able to pose the right questions I mean these are just increasingly critical skills to have in the modern world well before we end I always like to find out what my guest would recommend in terms of reading or watching something that inspires you in this topic? Is there something that you would like to recommend? Well, you did warn me that this was coming. So I gave it some thought and and there were many options. But one thing, particularly in the context of what we've been talking about, is a book called Gordy Night by Dorothy L. Sayers. And Gordy is the name for a formal feast where you invite alumni of the college, all colleges have this. So the book is called Gordy Night. It's a crime novel written in 1935 by a woman at the time when women crime writers were still quite rare. It's in the Lord Peter Wimsey series uh, that some some of the listeners may be familiar with. But in this book, the main character is a woman, Harriet Vane. The author of the book went to Somerville College In the book, it's a fictional Shrewsbury College, but that college actually opens up on Jowett Walk, which, of course, as a CAT student, you will have walked down many times. So this college would actually be roughly where CAT is now. And the book is a nice story, uh, but it's particularly an interesting commentary on the early fight for equality, equal rights in education for women. So it's wonderful. That's very the right to actually get a degree for women only came in the 1920s in Oxford. And until 1957, 
the rule was that you could only have a quarter of the number of men could be women. So you had a restricted number of women. And that 1957, that was lifted. It's unbelievable. So that, I must say, the last fact I, I looked up specially, but I think Gordy Knight as a, a picture of Oxford, you will recognize streets and places where you can rent the punt and things like that. But in terms of a commentary of, of, of the early issues for women studying at Oxford, it's, it's an interesting one. That's wonderful. Thank you. I, I definitely look forward to reading that. As you said, it, it certainly is a really important issue to also think about, about how women came into Oxford. And I mean, at this point now, it's really a 50-50, but it wasn't that long ago where it wasn't the case and women were not actually allowed to be at Oxford. So that's a that sounds like a wonderful book. Thank you very much for sharing. Well, I really enjoyed meeting you and hearing about your views and your insights on Oxford and particularly St. Catharines. It was really lovely to also get to know you and I hope I get to meet you in person once this subsided. So thank you very much for coming. I look forward to seeing you back here, either on a gaudy night or on any other occasion. <laughs> thank you. That would be amazing. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much.